Welcome back to the Rockonomics Podcast. Our hiatus is over. This is episode number 37. I'm your host, Dill, and today we sit backstage with bassist Dean Dinning of the band Toad the Wet Sprocket. Toad came out of Santa Barbara in the late 80s and self-financed their first two albums before signing with Columbia Records. A couple of hit singles, top modern rock tracks, and platinum albums helped the band build a very loyal following that proved itself when it raised five times the goal amount for a Kickstarter campaign in 2013 to market their album New Constellation. I talk with Dean just as Toda wrapping up their 2018 summer tour and our conversation went something like this. So we, we can start out light. I mean, I have a conspiracy theory I've, I've recently developed just uh, looking up some information about you guys in this, yes. this recent Steve Perry yeah. sighting. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the, how, how it came to be, and then I'm going to expose sure. expose the whole thing. Um, okay. Um, there's a, an old friend of ours from Santa Barbara. His name's Tom Flowers. He's a great musician and producer and mixer. Um, and I've played on a lot of stuff for Tom over the years, um, you know, played live with him. Anyway, he, through a different connection, um, Steve Perry called Tom to come in and, and engineer this solo record that he's been working on apparently for a really long time and to go through the tracks and help him, you know, finally finish this record. So Tom starts going down and working at Steve's home studio and going back and forth and he's worked on it for a couple of years and I had actually I've actually heard the record because Tom was uh, Tom has a space in the same place where I I do some work with another friend of mine named Zach Madden at a studio out in Goleta, California. And um and so Tom was mixing out there. So um he would frequently let me come in and and hear the mixes. And then when we were rehearsing down um in Los Angeles, I was literally getting my stuff out of the car and walking in when Tom pulls up in his Prius and he rolls down the window and he goes, what are you doing here? And I said to him the first words out of my mouth, I said, is this going to be the day that I finally meet Steve Perry? And Tom said, I think it is. (laughs) And so I just kind of went on with my day as usual. But then um, when we, we were running our set... And I guess Steve's been a fan of us for a long time. Journey were signed to Columbia when we were right. signed to Columbia. And I had heard through our A&R man, Ron Oberman, that, that he was a fan, that he liked what he had heard. And so um, we were just we were running our set to rehearse. And Steve and Tom come in and, you know, start picking our sound man's brain about, you know, some of the gear that we've got and, and how, just kind of how we do our, our operation. But then when we started playing All I Want, according to all counts, he sort of lost it, quote unquote, <laughs> and ran out of out of the control room where he was listening, and he joined me on the mic singing the song, and that's when that picture got snapped, and we hung out with him for about an hour and a half, that's and, funny. and um, he just, he's a really, really sweet, uh, really great guy. Really, yeah, I uh, mean, it, it, he, he's been missed, you know, he, he really kind of set the... Uh web on fire that those couple of weeks there's something about his voice that is so emotional it's not just how he delivers his uh you know what he's singing but it's also the emotional connection for all of us to that music Mm -hmm. and i think that when he does 
come back and perform live for people, I think it's going to be really emotional for a lot of people. The responses that I've seen um, to the first couple of songs that people have heard, it's, it's, it's been phenomenal. Now, what do, you, what do you say to him as a fan? Well, I thanked him for um, helping me discover Sam Cooke because I read in an interview in like Circus, probably, <laughs> magazine, when I was a teenager, that he, he listed this person, Sam Cooke, as one of his influences. Now, I had obviously heard Sam Cooke, but I hadn't taken the deep dive. Right. And, um, and so I, I, think, I remember immediately going out and getting a, a Greatest Hits, Sam Cooke, and just practically studying it. Uh, for the vocals and, and going that's how he did it uh, funny. that's how he did it. so I said first off I need to thank you for for helping me discover Sam Cooke and he thought that was awesome that's great <laughs> well it's interesting how you made that connection because I, the, the next question I want to ask is what can a fan say to you that's that's meaningful I mean you uh, probably get a lot of like oh I grew up with this or it was, got me through a tough time in my life but yeah. what's, what's kind of struck you as profound from a fan saying what their music's done you know I think that the most powerful thing that music can do for people is to help them to n- not give up hope. And if it gets you through, and if, it, if, it, if, it, if, if the fact that this band is playing in your town in, in two weeks, you know, uh, is what gets you through those two weeks to the other side, then I think that's great. You know, music has the power to, to motivate us to, to get together. There's way too much division in the world right now. Yes. And when you go to a concert or, or when, you, when you're listening to a record, it's when you're experiencing that, that communal feeling. And um, anything that brings us together and, and, and keeps us plugging away um, right. for another, another week, another month, another year, or, or through your whole life. Hopefully, you know, the, the thing that I think has been the greatest thing that I've heard people say after doing this for 30 years is, you know, your songs meant so much to me when I was in college, and I, I listen to them now when I'm like in my 40s. The meaning has changed, but it's just as powerful right. as it was back then. Yes. So p- people are finding that they can grow and go on with their lives, and then the music. The music works for them in, right. in all parts of their life. Well, it's a huge testament to you guys too in your your songwriting that it does. You know, it is timeless yeah. in a way. You know, not yeah. as timeless. As I mean, and it was. <laughs> we we try to keep things pretty non-specific. So you know, I, I always I always thought that it would be. I mean, I, I don't have anything against like Blink One Eighty Two or something, mm-hmm. but you know, the, I, I'm glad that our music isn't sort of you know on the cartoonish side. Mm-hmm. You know, because it would be hard to do that long term. Yeah. Sure. It'd be fun to do it in the beginning, I'm sure, you know. And I, I'm unfairly singling those guys out, but there's other other stuff like that. It yeah. would be hard to hard to do that as you know later as you go on and on. Mm-hmm. But this music, I find it just gets more meaningful the, the longer we do it. Yeah. Um, so my conspiracy theory is, is being a little heavy with it, but yes. So you dropped that that video went up end of July, and a mere two weeks later, his video goes up. Yeah, and, and I noticed the video. It's the same facility, so wherever he was practicing, he was probably filming. Too. Yeah, I saw that so too. Did you guys need to? And this this isn't a conspiracy, but did you need permission? Like, uh, you know, t- I mean, he's got something going on, so it's like, hey, yeah. drop it. It'll be great. I could really use the ground swell, and then two weeks, boom, I'm on a big press tour. I have a conspiracy theory too. My conspiracy theory is that I caused. Steve Perry to have to release this album oh, that he's been sitting on, you know, that's been done, and he's, you know, he's very, 
He's he's apprehensive. He right. doesn't know what the response is going to be. So he needed someone to help him kick it out the I, door I like and that. say, this thing's done. <laughs> I like that and, better. And maybe I was just the person. But the truth <laughs> is, is that after I knew that, that we had the photo and we had some video and I, I – in the car on the way home, I called Tom, my friend, because he's in very close contact with their camp. And I said, you know, I have to ask. You know, I have I have video and I have a photo. Do you think it would be okay if I posted that? And he said, yeah, just don't tell anybody where we were. So I haven't, I, you know, because it's a security concern. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't tell anybody where we were, but it sure did create sort of a pre- Oh, it was perfect. Pre-buzz. I mean, it was, it was 11 and, seconds long. You know, they were, <laughs> people were trying to figure out what, what, what was going on, and it just got people talking. And I was checking in with um, Steve's camp through my friend every day. I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I didn't think that this would happen, you know, and um, I hope they're cool with it. And he was like, no, 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 they're cool with it. They just, you know, they want to keep it under control. Yeah. They don't, uh, we, we didn't want to say that he had a new album. We didn't want to say that he was... You know, I don't know if there's going to be a tour. All I know is is that he's he's True. he's playing with musicians and trying to get comfortable with that whole thing again after not doing it for thirty years. Right. And I'm I think he should take as much time as he wants. <laughs> but when he does come back, it's going to be I I, I and I and I had the the opportunity to to say this to his face. I was just like you know, dude, there is so there's so much love just waiting to pour out for you. Yeah. You know, I know you're apprehensive and you haven't done this in a really long time, but people are just waiting to love you. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, that's, that's, that's <laughs> true and hard to, uh, it's hard to argue with from his point of view. You know? Yeah. I know, I know he's, you know, I listened to some of his interviews and he did go through a struggle, but yeah, there's a reason to come back. Yeah. And I think that, that, um, you know, as people have started to see with the, the story that he's telling with this music and the reason that he came back, I think it's perfect. It's, it's good. He knows he needs to do this. Yeah. It's not that he wants to do this. It's not. It's not a money grab. He doesn't need the money. He 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 needs he needs to do this to fulfill a promise he made to someone. Right. Which is, man, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, speaking of money, let's. Uh, <laughs> it is rockonomics. Let's, let's let's get into it. Sure. Uh, although, like I said, we don't we don't get too hard heavy into it. But what interests me about I mean, I'm a huge fan of Total. Like I said, I'm, I'm pretty well versed in you know your catalog and stuff, and the story. Um, but what I'm finding as I research is how um, how good you guys were at business in the beginning, and I'm yeah. wondering like who did you guys who guided you? I mean, just to back up, I know you guys did you know Bread and Circles was like a six hundred dollar venture, yeah. uh, Pal was six thousand dollars something around that about. Area. Um, but moving all the way to getting your deal, right? You know, I guess you guys did a deal where you know the advance wasn't as big and. And you guys wanted to maintain a certain amount of creative control. And I just realized you guys are very young at this point. You're probably yeah. early 20s. Who gave you the foresight to get, you know, to be so wise in, you know, making your deal or setting well, your path? We had, um, we had a, a couple of guys managing us, um, Chris Blake and Brad Knack. And uh, Chris had gotten one band a record deal before, but he had, you know, he had worked in the music industry and he'd seen a lot of stuff go down. And the main fear that I think I think the thing that we were thinking about was if you if you take a lot of money up front and then they look at there's this imaginary meeting where the record company looks at the balance sheet and says this is how much we've spent on them here's the return um, we should probably drop them and cut our losses 
So we wanted to avoid, get, we thought we could avoid getting into that situation by taking a small upfront advance from the record company um, side of things. Um, but then we sort of, uh, we didn't like make up for it or anything like that, but we did take a larger advance on the publishing side of things so that we wouldn't have to have day jobs. Okay. Um, and so that we could take the band out on the road and we did get tour support, um, in our deal. We got all the important things. We got creative control and we got loads of tour support and guaranteed videos and all of the important things, but they didn't, um, they didn't have a, you know, as much as. I mean, in all honesty, there were people out there that wanted to write us a check for a million dollars. But we didn't want to be beholden in that way. Uh, If if someone, you know, we weren't going to get all those other important things. We weren't going to get the creative control. We weren't going to get, you know, we got a we got a a great royalty rate on on our contract. If um, it was a favored nations type thing at Columbia at the time, where if um, if we had gotten a a higher royalty rate, they would have had to give Bruce Springsteen a higher royalty rate as well. So we got, you know, we we got if we. If we ever made money, we knew that we would be in a good position to hopefully recoup and maybe even make a little something. Okay. Um, yeah. When did um, when did publishing come in with your record deal? Or did yeah, you, I mean, you guys any, had the two elements. Any time that you've got a record deal and you've got and at that time we had Bread and Circus and Pale already completed, and so you know we had two finished albums that were going to be coming out through Columbia. We're going to be in stores and we're going to get promoted, you know, lightly. Um, anytime you've got that lined up, uh, a publisher sees that as, a, well, you know, they've got releases coming out. That's, you know, that's going to be some mechanicals. That's worth the risk. Mm-hmm. So, so we were able to get a publishing deal. Based and when that. did management come into play for you guys? Management came into play for us. Um, once again, Brad Knack and Chris Blake, um, we were playing in Santa Barbara. We had been playing for a year, a couple years, and we were opening for another band downtown at a club called Oscars. And Brad Knack, who, was one, who became one of our managers, saw us play. He was a songwriter. He had been in a band called The Tan. He had a publishing deal with Warner Chapel. And he was going in to make some demos, and he uh, wanted a, a band to back him up. He was going into this studio in Thousand Oaks, California that was, um, you know, uh, I think it was $16 an hour. And so um, he said that if we went in and backed him up on two of his songs, that he would pay for us to record two of our songs. And so that became, that, that was the first two songs on Bread and Circus. And once we heard what we sounded like recorded professionally, we thought, shoot, you know, because I was in, I was, I was sort of the band treasurer. I was in charge of the band fund. Okay. So you've got the right guy on your podcast here. <laughs> um, and so we looked at, uh, we, we had a band fund. We, we, we would make, you know, some, some money from the gig and give everybody a little money for gas. And then the rest I would put in the bank and we used it to do things like buy a PA system at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, because we thought that if we had our own PA that other bands would want to play with us because we had a good PA. Things like that. <laughs> that's motivation. That's smart. Um, so uh, we, ha- we looked at the, the thing and we said, you know, we have enough money to record eight more songs. Let's, uh, we certainly had, we had the songs. We recorded them at the same studio, the same price, and uh, put out Bread and Circus on cassette. Now back to the cost of that. If it's roughly six hundred bucks, use the I've, yeah. like you said use your, your, the kitty you had. What was um, 
at the time when you did it, were you putting it as consignment, just going to record shop to record shop to yeah. put it in there? Yeah, and selling it out of the backs of our cars. I, I had um, boxes of them in the back of my Toyota Celica. And what about the graphics? Was it just like Xeroxes, it was, um, or did you get a printer to... We did. We, uh, we got a print. We got it professionally done down in Los Angeles. Brad hooked us up because he had done the, this kind of stuff before. We had a like a bin master made at a place where they would run the cassettes, and we had you know we he did the artwork. He was a, an artist, and he painted the album cover himself. Um, and we you know put the lyrics on the inside and and got them printed up by a company that that did. There's companies that do that in L.A. And um, we had boxes of these things, and we would take them. We had independent uh, record stores. Um, out in Isla Vista, uh, in downtown Santa Barbara, many of them um, would just put a box of them uh, on the counter, and we sold the first 500 in about a month, nice. and then had to do a reorder. Were you taking any of these and sending them out to either radio or or we weren't? Labels? But the crazy thing is, is that we were actually. This is so cocky looking back on it. We shouldn't have done this, but but it was funny. Um, when when record companies would call asking for a cassette, we'd say, "Okay, that that's fine. That'll be five dollars, please." You know, and we actually we actually sold two cassettes to Geffen Records for five dollars a piece. But the thing that really happened for us was a guy uh, named Nick Turzo, who later went on to sign Allison Chains at Columbia. He he um, he got an A and R job at Columbia um, uh, during the time he was helping us. He worked at ASCAP. And Nick bought one of our cassettes. I think he saw one of our, our shows or heard about it. And uh, we were also playing the uh, ASCAP showcase at the Coconut Teaser um, down in Los Angeles a lot. So he might have seen us there. But he dubbed off copies of his cassette and sent it to everyone he knew in the L.A. music industry. And that's when the phone started ringing. Wow. What a big break. I know. Um, he did that for us. So moving to Pale, everything just scaled up. You guys are kind of... I mean, are you Pale, locally touring? Or no, like? no. Um, Pale was um, simply an opportunity to use um, time um, while we were in L.A. We were in L.A. already meeting with record labels about, um, about potentially getting a deal um, during the daytime. And then we had all this... We had some extra time in the evenings and, you know, in between that. And we thought, you know, it would be really great... Um, as as we're doing these negotiations to to be able to tell people, yeah, we're already making the second record. Yeah. You know, just like we wanted to give the impression, and this was also coming from management, that they they had this idea that what you want to do is you want to create a little machine that works that a record company has wants to plug their big machine into your little machine that's already working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to give the impression that everything was was just proceeding along and that they could either get on or miss out right. um, to the point where we actually when this when pale was finished we we delivered it to the record companies who were waiting to hear it before they would make an offer a final offer on us we actually had it pressed and mastered on vinyl and delivered it to them on vinyl oh, oh just to further the impression that this was not something that was changeable it's like we're going to make the records and we're going to hand them in and when we hand them in they're done to the point of it's already pressed right all right let's revisit that when we go, <laughs> let's revisit that when we go to the next album go um, ahead. one thing i want to bring up is uh I was on vacation recently, and I asked for a book to read, and somebody said uh, Jennifer Trinan. Do you remember her? Ah, uh, yeah. So she had a similar story. She did a self-release; it became huge, and she had this major, yeah. you know, bidding war. 
And it's funny, in her book, her meeting with Columbia, they use you guys. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's great. They say, um, we're a career, you know, we're career oriented. Yeah. It's like, look at Toad the Wet Sprocket. They came to us with, with their own album. We put it out as is. See? They did it number that's two, great. put it out as is. But they said it wasn't, They, you know, you guys were kind of struggling a bit. And he said, um, you know, number three, they hit it. And now, you know, they're on the way. But it's, it, but she went with Warner. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I had no idea. I'll show you. First I've heard of that. <laughs> so you're with Columbia. Yeah. Um, you, you're going to get tour support. You're going to get videos. Yep. Um, Fear does become a breakout, but I didn't I didn't realize um, the hit single was the third single of the album. The hit single was the third single of the record. What were the, what were the first two? The first, um, the first one me? was Is It For Me, right. which we shot a video for. Um, the second one was Hold Her Down. Wow. Which was a controversial choice. Sure. Um, but they felt that it could break, so it could open some doors mm-hmm. um, at rock radio. And it kind of did okay at rock radio. And, it, and it, it kind of got people used to saying the name a little right. bit on the radio. Um, but yeah, all I want, um, all I want actually. Um, there was a bit, a, a bit of that story with all I want that, you know, they, we had done two singles and they thought, you know, we haven't released anything to top 40. Um, let's, let's just see if this works. And then, uh, an opportunity came up, um, to have the song used in a promotional campaign for an NBC drama. Uh, called the Round Table. It was a show that only lasted about two episodes, but um, people always say it's better to be have your song in the trailer than it is to have it in the movie because more people often end up seeing the trailer. Sure, um, which was the case with the Round Table because the promo spot that featured All I Want um, ran during the Olympics, oh, that's and it. NBC was broadcasting the Olympics. That's a good hundred million. So there, you know, there's a certain amount of saturation. Um, that has to happen with a song before a listening audience can even decide whether or not it's a hit. Um, and that's why it, it costs, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in promotion to get a, a song out there today to get it heard enough for mm-hmm. it to even have the chance of becoming a hit. But that, um, that got it out there to the point where people thought it was the theme song for the show, but it wasn't. And, um, and, and people started calling it and requesting it on the radio and it it just started getting a lot of positive um, feedback on the phones and everything else and and it um, it it took on a life of its own and we were off the road at that point I was on vacation Um, and did you have a video yet we we did have a video um, because we were we it was going to be the 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 third single and we you know but at the same time we were like yeah, let's. Um, we we got the guy who did the album cover of Fear, Hans Nelman, yep. um, to direct the video. Um, you know, we weren't going to go to the priciest, most MTV guy. We were still going to do it our way, and 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 you know, um, so yeah, we had the video ready, and and um, uh, MTV did not think that we were cool enough to play us, but the song got so much traction that they pretty much had, had to, to after a while. Yeah. So, with with Fear being your first. You know, record under Columbia with videos and stuff. Just a lot of creative process. What were there days where they were kind of getting their mitts 
into stuff, the, the suits where you... Yeah, were... I mean, but, but we had a great creative department, and we were never like, you know, that it had to be completely hands-off. I mean, we had a great, wonderful art department and, and, a, and a video department and people who really tried to get, you know, what we wanted and, and, and really tried to help us uh, uh, make videos that we could um, be happy with. Um, we had a wonderful team at Columbia, and uh, I'm still in touch with many of the people that we worked with there. Um, I'm, I'm very happy with, with the people. We had um, a wonderful man named Tom Gibson, who was our product manager, who is essentially the guy who oversees all your marketing, your video, okay. your, um, your artwork, your, your packaging, things like that. And he just really, really understood us, and he has become a close friend of the band oh, and cool. has been, uh, you know, we are in regular contact with him and his, and his family and he's become like part of our extended family okay. over the years. We really lucked out with some great people in the LA office of Columbia records at that time. It was, it was great. That is great. That's rare to hear it seems. Yeah. So even though we said we want this to be hands off, once we met the people, it was like, Oh no, you can stay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you, you have, you know, a taste of success. What does the next Dulcinea that becomes the next album, correct? Yeah, well, um, we uh, Dulcinea was the next record, and um, we Are there more felt we, we we used the same producer again. We used Gavin McKillop again, who had produced um, Fear because um, we liked the our our way of working with him. Um, we had been playing a lot live because we had been touring quite a bit and um, we wanted a record that reflected our, our live sound uh, more than Fear did. For Fear was very, um, it was very manicured and it had a lot of overdubs on it. There were accordions and strings and, and all kinds of stuff like that. We wanted to, to kind of take it back to a more immediate sounding um, rock record. Um, so we went to a studio in Marin called The Site. We, we went away for the, for the Fear record, too. We, we always recorded out of town if we could because that would eliminate, you know, the uh, record, the suits from just popping in right. on their way home. Um, so uh, we did it at this place called The Site where Pearl Jam had just uh, done their second album. And we did it mostly live together in a big room and then, you know, overdubbed things and fixed things later. But it had the energy of a live performance. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think we just put, we, uh, we spent a little more money on it. It was a nicer studio. Um, was there any stress involved with that? You know, spending the money or were you kind of thinking... You know, yeah, there was always there was know, always a little a little, money, a little bit of that, you know, like oh god, sh you know, sh should we be doing this? You know, couldn't we do it cheaper? Right. And um, but we 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 also decided that we wanted to to kind of have the full experience, and this was a great place um, that you know it was out in the woods, and we all had cabins that we lived in. And um, it was just kind of an idyllic setting to make a record. We thought, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, you know, maybe the way I looked at it was, it was a nice, a nice way of rewarding ourselves for the hard work that we had put in the previous two years. At this point, too, are you also thinking, I've got a career in music, or is it like starting to look that way? You know, it's um, I don't, you know, it's hard to, be, you know, being a musician, being any career in the arts. Uh, just getting by, you're doing better than most people. Uh, most people have to do something else in order to pursue something in the arts. Right. 
Um, so if you're able to actually do it for a living and actually that's the only thing you do, you are seriously one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Um, if you get to do it beyond that, you're you're in that rarefied area. Um, I mean, we were just about doing the work and kind of kept our heads down, and, and it was you know, it's like you really once it once the ball starts rolling, you really want to just keep focusing on that and keep the momentum happening because nothing lasts forever, right. and you will inevitably have a breather at some point. You know, nobody just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know? And I've talked to people who've been in the situation and then they're like, oh, but I'm so tired. Uh, I'm like, trust me, just go out and, and do one more go around because it's not going to last. It's, right. it'll, it'll taper off and then you can take a breather, you know? Yeah. But when it's working, work it. We did 275 shows in one uh, year uh, on, the, on the Fear Tour. You know, we worked it. We went around the country four times playing larger venues each time because it just kept getting bigger. Right. Did you ever go abroad with it? We did. Um, we had limited success abroad. We, um, we played in Europe and we actually, um, Walk on the Ocean was uh, like a number three uh, charting uh, song in France. Oh, nice. Um, and that's as, that's as successful as we ever got outside of the United States. And we did well in Canada. Um, uh, but, uh, we went over to Japan and played once, but yeah, it, it wasn't, I don't know if our thing really translated. Mm -hmm. I was going to move to your, uh, I was on your mailing list, I think since pale. Yeah. How big did that get? The, the peak of that original mailing list was 70,000 names. 70,000 names. Yeah. Now, again, I think you guys were ahead of the curve. You guys, you know, you had good engagement with your mailing list. Yeah. But being Rockonomics, if, if I remember I got a cassette. Now to run off a cassette and to mail a cassette, even if it's 25,000, there's an expense involved. Being Rockonomics, I can tell you the truth behind that situation, which is that that's another thing that our managers got put in our record contract Through that the, we would have, that they would support our mailing list, which we had already started, that they would support um, X number of mailings a year to the tune of X promotional dollars. It was part of. The, it was going to be part of the promotion budget. Okay, that's great. So there's your that's answer. Because really, I was wondering. <laughs> when I saw. I. I, I know, it's expensive. I, I heard that. I heard I'm, that number. I don't know if it got to the point where it was seventy thousand well, when you were mailing stuff out. But that's a one year. Everybody got a cassette single of of Walk on the Ocean yeah. before it came out on the record as a Christmas present. Yes, thank you. So I, you know, thank you. For those that. are the kind of things that I think we're still kind of reaping the benefits of that today. Is like that that kind of connection. People just kind of couldn't believe it. They kind of felt like they had these friends who were in a band who had made it. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, in today's digital age, it's just, you, you'd have 70,000 likes or 70,000 sure. followers, but, but it's... But that doesn't mean the same yes, thing. There's not a as like, much. A like isn't, as, isn't the same as someone actually being on your fan yeah. mailing list. You know, we had some pretty uh, notable people who were originally on our mailing list. Adam Duritz was on our oh mailing list. I just found Darius Rucker's original mailing list card with his mother's address oh on God, it awesome. when he was living at home um, in a drawer at my house. Now, do you have, are you the archivalist of Toad? I, um, our storage space is in Ventura, which is where I live. 
And so when we need something out of storage, I'm frequently the person who is called upon to go and retrieve it. And then I find things out there and I'm like, oh, look at this. I go out there trying to get in and out in like 10 minutes and I inevitably spend an hour because I find something that I haven't seen in years. Now, is there a place for this sometime in the future? I mean, Um, there might be, but uh, it would require a lot of a lot of work. I mean, we we any kind of. You know, there's not really much that's releasable. There's actually a lot of of old promotional mm-hmm. uh, stuff. Okay. Um, there's a lot of all I want cassette singles out there, for example. And I'm not sure exactly how much value there is right. there. Okay. Um, all right. So moving on, uh, Coil was your next album. Um, well, technically, Inlight Syrup was the next right, that record. Was, that was your um, B-side. Because so. we were going to take uh, some time off because we had been really working it. But we wanted to have something come out in the meantime. And um, Friends, the television show, had decided that they were going to pick up Good Intentions, which we had left off of the Fear record, um, because we thought it was too pop. Right. Um, so they, that was going to come out, and it was going to be promoted as a single by Warner Brothers. Um so we thought it might be good to have our own product out in the store that also had good intentions on it. And also I had made this mixtape of all the songs from the Fear and Dulcinea sessions um, that had not uh, made it onto the record. Most of them were incomplete and they're still incomplete on the, on the Inlight Syrup record. Um, but I made this mixtape and I, I played it for the guys one day when we were driving around in the van. I, th- I, th- well, I thought we should put this out and our manager thought it was a great idea. And I had this idea for, you know, in the title, in light syrup. And I said, the artwork is going to be like a can of fruit and all this stuff. And it'll look like a classic uh, fruit label kind of thing. And they kind of went with, with the whole thing. That was originally a cassette mixtape that I made. That's great. It's funny. And so we put that out and um, in light syrup went gold without oh, us really? having to tour That's behind cool. it at all. I was going to say, it gave you a much-needed break. It gave us a much-needed break, and then, mm-hmm. but it kept us out there in, uh, in the marketplace mm-hmm. and on the radio while we were regrouping. And so then that gets us to Coil. And Coil was considered, uh, I guess, record company-wise, not that they're saying, but it's not as, it didn't live up to the billing as previous. Mm, it didn't live up to, it, you know, it's funny. I hear this even now. Like, um, there's this band that I like, they're called the 1975, okay? And this, just the other day, my, I have a 15-year-old daughter, she, she comes to me and, and uh, she says, I want to play you this song. She plays me a song by an artist named uh, Troy Sivan. And there's a, a track on there and it sounds just like the 1975. And I go, God, isn't that crazy? That's the same thing that happened to Toad is that after about four years, there were about 10 other bands that had the same sort of sonic identity that we did. I mean, Tonic had come out and, you know, Sister Hazel had come out. And I mean, good Lord, Hootie came out, you know, all this other stuff that was guitar jangly, you know, harmonies, that kind of thing. So we were no longer the only ones doing our thing. It wasn't our thing to begin with. Okay. But in the meantime, and so we came out and it was just kind of, you know, Coil came out and it was just kind of, you know, instead of, you know, being as special as it was, uh, in 92, 93, um, it was, it, it kind of felt like another, another of those records and uh, people had, were kind of you know, people are always interested in something that's fresher and newer. Mm-hmm. And um, so, um, 
Yeah, that one that one didn't quite uh, do what it should have. Um, we probably could have um, taken more time and gone back and 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 if we had taken an, an, another six months, you know, done some more writing. I think that the record company never really felt like there was a strong breakout single on that record, mm-hmm. and they would have preferred if we had waited until we had one. Um, but we wanted to go ahead and, and put it out, um, and we did, and that's what happened. Yeah, it's a great album. I mean, I think it's, Who's, it's, who it's, knows it's, whether the same it might have had the same result had we waited, and and you know, great songs fail to connect all the time. Yeah, but that that's that album's aged very well too. It has, yeah. That one, and that one was done differently, and, and uh, because this is rockonomics, I can tell you uh, how that one was done. We decided we were going to do it differently. We didn't go away. We did decide to make the record at home to the point where we um, took took some of the recording budget and um, built a pretty good home studio. Glenn had bought a twenty four track uh, machine, mm-hmm. a Stevens twenty four track, and we had all, he had been collecting preamps and and uh, all kinds of audio gear and learning how to record and things like that. We did not do the basic tracks ourselves. We did the basic tracks in Burbank at a studio called Master Control. The drums um, were done there. But then we took it all back to the home studio and, and finished it on our own time um, without ha- having to look at the clock and, be, and going, this is costing $1,000 a day. We need to get this thing done. We, we took some time. And then the money that we saved by doing it that way, we said, we're going to, because we've never done this before, and we wanted there were two things that we wanted to do. One was to um, get a couple of songs uh, to have string arrangements done by a guy named Van Dyke Parks, who is Brian Wilson collaborator on okay. Smile, and he had um, he had done a, a, he had worked with T Bone. Uh, Burnett a lot, and and I was a big admirer of of his work. The other thing was that um, we were listening to records by people like um, you know Live and the Wallflowers, and these mixes uh, by a guy named Tom Lord Algae, and thinking, God, that sounds fantastic when it comes on the radio. You know, it just mm, just everything just comes alive. So we thought we'll take some of the money that we'll, we'll, we'll save money by recording it, finishing the record at the home studio. And then we'll get Tom Lord algae to, to mix it. Cause that was going to be pricey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we did. And, uh, he mixed it in Florida and a few of us went out to Florida for two weeks and supervised the mixing. And, um, so we, we actually accomplished the things that we set out to do differently and um, and it is it's a different record, but that's why it, that's why it's a different record. It's those Tom Lord algae mixes. It's the it's the Van Dyke Park string arrangement. It's it's getting to it's there's some indulgence there, but it's good. Yeah, it's quality indulgence for sure. <laughs> so if that was released in that was ninety eight. No, a ninety seven. Ninety seven. Yeah. Did it? Was it only about a year away before you guys took your break? Yeah, I think that was kind of when it when it didn't quite do what we wanted it to do, and we thought, you know, let's let's see what else is out there. And you know, we shouldn't have. We got some bad advice. Uh, I think um, at that time we should have taken a break and not broken up. We thought that we had to break up to take a break, and that mm-hmm. was ridiculous. At that time, were you thinking it's over? Like. <sighs> Toad is is dead. (laughs) We had one of the best and most amicable breakups you can have, so I'm going to say no. Okay. I mean, you guys are because we didn't didn't do anything that would blow it up. Right. Yeah. That's good. No. 
Well, that's good because here we are. Yeah. Here we are today. No, we didn't do anything <laughs> stupid. Was it easy to get? Was there an easy out of your contract, or was your contract up for renewal? Well, or? that was that's another story. But there's there's you know the record company held the publishing company at that point. We were signed to um, Sony Tunes for Sony ATV for our music publishing, and they claimed that. Um, that just because we had broken up that that didn't mean we were out of our publishing contract and they hummed and hawed on that and kept us on the on there for years. Good for them. Um, but then we finally got a full reversion of our publishing and we own 100% of it now, which was in our original publishing contract, but they didn't want to give us that back because they claimed that we had given improper notice. Right. But no, I mean, when it, we, exercise, we essentially exercised the leaving member clause um, except that all four of us were leaving, okay, and no one was left in the middle. <laughs> um, so shortly after, uh, Lapdog, yes, Lapdog was to... was pretty much all of the songs that Todd and I had demoed for what was going. We were going. We were planning on doing another Toad record, but then it just it was just not coming together. Right, we couldn't agree on on. Uh, I don't know. It was it was it was not it was not going well. The timing is, is interesting too because this is the rec- the record industry is exploding. Yeah, or imploding. Yeah, maybe better described. So what are you what are you thinking What are you thinking with Lapdog when 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 Lapdog starts? Are you thinking let's get another record deal or are you thinking we got to rethink this whole thing? I I was thinking of it as these are great songs. Let we need you know the fans are we've got people that are waiting to hear these. We should get them out so that so that people can hear the work that we've done, mm-hmm. um, and that was about it. I mean, I didn't think that we would be. I didn't think that we could pick up where Toad left off, or that we'd be bigger than Toad, or anything like that. Um, I think um, hoped for possibly a subset of the Toad fan base that would, you know, that's the kind of level that I thought we might be able to get mm-hmm. uh, for something for for Lapdog. Um, but with but, your context that you had at the time, was there well, ever a I thought mean, of like, both, let's get these guys you know, to pay for it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we had um, we had some people working for us in in a management capacity, and we had um, we we actually had a record deal that was okay. uh, you know offered to us that um, that fell apart. Okay. And then at that point, I decided that I just needed to, to take myself out of music for a while. Okay, good segue. Yeah. I, I saw, I can't remember where I got it. It might have been your LinkedIn page. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always love when musicians have LinkedIn pages. Um, you got into producing, which is yeah. natural. Mm-hmm. But you also, did you get into acting? I did. Um, I uh, I had always wanted to uh, do voiceover work because um, people thought I had a distinctive voice. Um, sometimes people mistake loud for distinctive. Um, I am rather loud. Um, but I started, I, I met some people, I met some actors. I had, I, I was always uh, doing theater. In fact, the band met doing theater in high school. Um, we were all in, in productions and, and, uh, we were all actors. Um, and so I didn't want to do anything that was going to not be performing. If I didn't, if I could still be performing and, you know, doing that um, uh, sounded very appealing. So I, I met some actors. I started taking some classes. Um, I, I made a demo. Uh, at that point, it kind of stalled because I, I, I was not able to make the connection to actually getting a, an agent at that mm-hmm. time. Um, I did some non-union stuff. Um, I did a few uh, non-union films. I would send in my headshot and resume and, um, you know... Uh, 
you know, a lot of the time people would uh, would call me in to do something, uh, you know, a small part in something like that. But most of the time it was funny. I I would get these calls from either someone who was making a film or an actor friend of mine, and they'd say, "Hey, yeah, I want to talk to you about my next film." I'd be like, "Great, great, great. What's the part?" And then they'd say, "I want you to do the music." (laughs) And so, you know. Music kind of dragged me back. Right. I was going to say it's the Godfather 3. It is. You know, I, it, it just pulled me back in because people kept asking me to, to write music for stuff. I ended up, um, I ended up meeting a, a director who ended up producing uh, an independent film that they had. The guy who scored High School Musical was supposed to score it. He dropped out. They had two weeks to do the score. He said, we've got X amount of dollars. And I said, I'll do it. You know, uh, and so I, I just threw myself in and and scored a film. I did all kinds of things that I'd been wanting to do. That's great. But I, 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 um, I learned about scoring and, and um, writing to picture and, um, you know, the right way to deliver stuff. I learned the whole that whole other side of the industry that a lot of people uh, uh, who start out in bands and stuff, you know, certainly, you know. Danny Elfman, among others, right. you know, it's like, that's, you just learn it. If yeah. someone else can learn it, I can learn it. Well, it's interesting. What I want to go to next is did, did going to Nashville, the songwriting mm. happen at a similar time or right after that? Yeah, it happened after that. Um, Todd, um, Todd Nichols, guitar player from Toad, he had called me and said, I'm listening to a lot of stuff on country radio that sounds like Toad. He said, I think these people are at the point where they might have grown up listening to Toad. And we should, it was actually, you know, one of, one of his ideas, uh, uh, we should try going to Nashville and writing with people. Um, because if this is what, if this is what's working on the radio for in, in country, it was like, oh, chimey electric guitars and big choruses. Right. So, and, and we thought that we, you know, th- this name's got to be good for something, you know. And so we were currently out of our publishing deal and, um, sh- you know, shopping for a new deal um, for the Toad Publishing. And some people at Bicycle Music who were interested in our catalog and who were interested in working with us, they had a, uh, a person who worked for them as a song plugger in Nashville who was a huge fan of Toad. Go figure. And he said, if you guys come out here for a week, I can get you two writing sessions a day. For Monday through Friday, there'll be so many people that'll want to write with you. And I found out when I got there, just that, you know, when I say that that yeah, Toad name's got to be worth something, people in Nashville can write with other Nashville people every day. But when somebody comes in from out of town, they'll do it just to do something different, okay. shake things up That's interesting. and get a result that they wouldn't have gotten from somebody in town. Mm-hmm. And um, we met a lot of terrific people. In fact, I, 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 um, I met this guy, um, one of the writers that we wanted to uh, do a song with was a guy named Dave Pahanish. He uh, he's a great, terrific writer. He had written um, "Do You Believe Me Now" for uh, Jimmy Wayne, and he had done uh, uh, he did "Without uh, Without You" for Keith Urban. Okay. Anyway, it, we thought that Dave was a, a fan of Toad, but it turned out Dave's Dave's manager, Dave's publisher, Cole. Uh, Cole Wright was the one who was who was a huge fan of our band and had set up Dave to write with us. We actually wrote about four or five songs with with Dave, um, but the the real connection ended up to be Cole because 
Cole recently asked us to do a, a, a Roger Miller song on okay. the Roger Miller tribute in, album, which he produced. Okay. So, uh, and you know, the Cole now will probably ask us to do more things in the future. That's a, that's an open, you know, that's an open-ended thing. Okay. That's great. <laughs> um, how do you get paid? Do you get paid when you're, when you're, you know, collaborating in a song? Are you hoping to get paid on the end by selling the song and getting publishing? Or is somebody paying just to work with you? Oh, you mean when when we when we write? Yeah. Oh no, there's no upfront okay. on that. If the song gets picked up and cut by an artist, you know you're, um, you know you're 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 hoping for the the long game there. Okay. That's how you're doing it. I mean, some people in Nashville, they've got publishing deals. They're on a draw. Um, they get you know x amount of dollars a month to live on, so that they don't have to have a day job. But then you know when they have that hit. The record company, you know, the publishing company says, okay, well, you know, you've been on a draw for, for two years and that's, you know, we've been paying you two grand a month for two years and that's, you know, 50 grand right there. So we'll take 50 grand off your royalties and now your balance is zero and you get $2,700. <laughs> and they're like, huh, I thought it was going to be more. Yeah. <laughs> um, and all the while you guys are still sporadically playing together yeah a couple we, of dates here we started there. um we started uh doing this again in in 2006 um and we started out with like 10 shows and we looked at each other at the end of it and thought that's not enough and and so we did more the next year and gradually ramped it up to the point where we're at um now although a lot's happened since then and you know we we did another new album and an ep and we have new management and we have all all kinds of stuff going on um, before we get to there, yes. Before we get to the present, yes. Um, all you want, all you want. That's right. That was, that was was that self funded. It was, was. minus. It was self funded and uh, and um, yeah, we um, produced that ourselves, and that was a real uh, kick to do that because there's no better way to learn how to produce than to actually get under the hood of your own songs and try to make sound alikes of your hits. Now we did that because. We um, is that a master's thing? Yeah, so that we could own, um, so we could get both sides of a sync deal. Um, because also we had heard that um, our, we, we were in a meeting with our business manager one day. We've had a business manager this whole time, a wonderful guy named Todd Gelfand, um, who has been with us. We were one of his first clients, and we're still with him today. Um, he also represents David Crosby. Um, a lawnmower company had come to David Crosby and said, we want to use uh, Almost Cut My Hair in a lawnmower commercial. And he said, and they said, great. He said, but, and, but then the people who, they said, um, yeah, we went to Warner Brothers for the master and they said it's going to cost $350,000. <laughs> and David Crosby thought for a moment, he said, book me a day at the Village Recorder and I'll make you one that sounds just like it for two fifty. Funny. And they said, Okay. So we said, wow, if we can have our own masters that we control that sound just like the originals, we can do that too. And, um, you know, our, our masters have been used successfully without anyone knowing that they weren't the original. They've been, it's been used on, um, uh, in, uh, jobs, uh, the Steve, Steve jobs, jobs movie, movie, um, used on one tree Hill, um, used on, um, shoot, all kinds of stuff. All, most of our recent placements have been for our re-recorded masters. Okay. Um, 
What's interesting to me is I'm I, a little I'm a little bit a part of it because you guys did an agency like you guys want to license your music yeah. advertising agencies you know, right or a direct line. You played at my agency in New oh, York okay. City. Yeah, you know you guys did like five. That song. was when we were working with Primary set. Wave. Was that part of? Did you do that like ten times? We did that about or? four, four or five yeah, times. I mean, there's four giants. Yeah, when it was global. convenient and when yeah. you know they had something that they wanted to set up for us, and they had you know some something where they thought it would be a good fit or that, that it would resonate. We we did it. Yeah, we didn't do a ton of it. Yeah, um, we did a bit of that. Okay. Yeah, yeah that was cool. Thanks for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Our pleasure. <laughs> uh, next topic, and we can do the abbreviated. It's, sure. It's well talked about, but Kickstarter. Kickstarter. Um, Great. My, my question. Yeah. My question for that is, who's stuffing the envelopes? Because it's four of you guys. It's part of. And it's a huge. I know. It turned into a huge. I know. Thing. So are you guys hiring? Yes. Out? You hire what is known as a fulfillment yes. company. Okay. Um, and that comes directly out of. The, the money that comes in from the pledges. Um, you know, we set out to, well-documented, well we set out with a goal of $50,000, ended up getting about $260,000. Right. Okay. And once, you know, and that paid for, among other things, the fulfillment of all the orders. Right. Um, and we took into account how much it was going to cost to ship things um, when, we, when we put together the various packages because we had heard um, that some people had actually, you know, gone into the hole on Kickstarter by having to ship posters in a tube to India or something like that <laughs> and getting killed on the shipping. So we were trying to learn from other, other people's um, missteps. Um, but, yeah, that was, you know, I'll tell you, for, for our direct involvement of that, there was a lot of signed merchandise that right, people got. Incredible. So I, I, we all ended up with very sore hands. And, you know, Glenn did a lot of handwritten lyrics. So kudos to him because um, he had to, you know, write, write them out in his own hand mm -hmm. um, and, and turn those in. But th that was about um, as much of the, uh, the fulfillment as we got involved with. Was there anybody else? Like I'm familiar. I'm sorry. Familiar, familiar with fulfillment yeah. in my background in advertising. But who's taken the emails that are saying, I wanted an autographed poster and I got an autographed LP? Like, who's, right. who do you guys? Is it, I, mean, I think that was who's, who's our, doing that? Work? Our management um, was doing that at that time. And they, they did a great job. Um, they, they were really on the ball and they got it all sorted out um, without any feathers being ruffled. Because yeah. unfortunately, as successful as it is, and I, again, I've done these before, oh, yeah. you only hear from the people that are, have an issue. <laughs> Internet is still the world's largest complaint department. Um, one quick broad uh, question about the future, then I just have a final five. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Give everybody, but um, I know you guys probably aren't doing the album route anymore, that you probably want to try to stretch things out and kind of, you, gotta, you, you can't go away. You've either read other interviews I've done or you're reading my mind, because uh -huh. that's exactly what um, our plan is. I mean, moving forward... Uh, the problem with putting out an album is that the story is over with in three right. months and sometimes less. Um, it's great to be an album band. And I, I still, I mean, I say, you know, with a new band out there, if you can get, if you can make three great albums in a row that connect with people, you can, you can be doing this 30 years later. Um, we were able to do that, which is great. Um, 
but yeah, we want to. We need. We found that we need to stretch the story out. So our goal right now is to record new material and hopefully put out a string of singles, one every quarter. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the goal. Now, is there any way to monetize your music, or is that that's past? what's happening here tonight <laughs> at the theater? Um, you know, but we you still need to do the road work to get um, monetizing it. Really, putting out new music. It's it's kind of like. You hope that that there's that there'll be a stream from it. Um, since you know we do everything through TuneCore, yes, there is a small stream there. Um, yes, things do get streamed. Um, yes, we're making more from streaming than we were two years ago. Um, yes, we're making you know we've got now we've got lyric videos up for all of the masters that we own 100% of the master of and 100% of the publishing. So when people click on those, um, the stream goes straight to us. Right. Um, we've pretty much got everything dialed in as much as we can. Um, it's fractional and it's all very small amounts, but we're, we're collecting those fractions of a cent wherever we can. Mm-hmm. But we're not looking at that as the thing that's going to, um, to, to keep it going or be the driver. I mean, if you do... My, our manager, Bill Leopold, he, he says, you know, we are in a single song economy where, you, you know, you're always just one song away. If you have one song that connects for whatever reason, it can it can turn the whole thing upside down overnight. Right. Um, so, you know, you, any time you put out a new song, you're hoping for that. Um, and you're hoping to, you know, like even with this Roger Miller tribute album, there are going to be people that hear this band in context. Um that have never listened to us before, right. and that's the most appealing thing. Is mm-hmm. to how do you how do you get new people after doing it for this long? Sure. Um, so looking for more opportunities like that, like we've got a song that's that's in a movie that has been tied up um, with a distributor for the last year, but he recently got out of his deal. It's called Animal Crackers. We wrote an original song for that one. Um, that's a terrific animated uh, family movie that's going to come out in January of 2019. Okay, cool. So yeah, I mean, more stuff like that. It's it's ways of getting the band in front of of, of people that you know that, that wouldn't ordinarily hear us. Okay. All right, as promised, I'll let you go with these five questions. Yeah, this hit the, me. The final five. Yeah. First question I want to be sensitive with because I know you guys have gone through mudslides and, yes. and forest fires. Yes. This I usually phrase the sentence as if your house is on fire. Right. What do you go back and get that's music related? Yeah. Um, I recently evacuated my house because oh, of a did. fire. And I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I brought my laptop, uh, my two portable hard drives, and um, one five-string bass and one four-string bass in case I needed to go out and work. Okay. I, I, I took everything I would need if I... If I got a call, you know, when we were stuck in a hotel because we couldn't go back to the house, if I, we got a call for a gig somewhere that someone had booked and they dropped out and, hey, we should go, they want us to go do this thing, we need to fly out tomorrow. If I needed to do that, I could pick up my bases right. and get on a plane and go. Does that mean you left another half dozen there that you couldn't take with? Yes. <laughs> okay. I had to decide which ones I cared about and which ones I didn't. And what, which ones? That oh, I, I took did, my uh, the ones that I use on stage every night. I, I have a, a 1965 Precision bass and a, and a and a Lakeland that was made for me. And you've, uh, five you've used those throughout I've, your career. I've used those for the last four or five years. Okay. Uh, question number two. I know you guys are very charitable. Yeah. Um, conscious. Uh, 
hypothetically, if I was in a position to give you a million dollars to yes. give to one charity, which one charity would you choose to give it to? Gosh. Which I know it's hard because you guys have throughout your career, kind of. I think um, something related to um, animal shelters. Okay. Um, Are you a animal nothing animal nothing kills me more than um, than the idea of of a, a beautiful animal uh, stuck in a shelter somewhere uh, needing a home. Right. Do you have dogs or cats? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, question three is: What would your walk-up music be to the pearly gates? My walk-up music to the pearly gates would probably be the um, the. The throne room force theme from Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, when they all get the medals at the end. I haven't seen it. No? Okay. Yeah, Episode Four, when when uh, when Luke and and Han Solo, when Leah gives them all the medals at the end, it's the big theme. John Williams doesn't get any better than all right, that. Say no more. On the flip side of that, what's stuck on repeat in hell? What's stuck on repeat in hell? Um, gosh, what is... Uh, um, La Vida Loca. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll agree with that. <laughs> Use that for mine, too. Yeah. Uh, last question is just simply, what's the best concert you've ever witnessed? Best concert I have ever witnessed. I, I have... Seen a lot of shows in big places and small, um, but one of the greatest things I ever saw was this band um, called Lucius. Now, two girls who sing harmony together. Um, they're currently out on tour with Roger Waters, singing all the backup parts for him. But they have made three great records. And they did a show at Soho in Santa Barbara, where at one point they came off the stage and came into the crowd and did a song with everyone just around them, acoustically, and it completely blew my mind. <laughs> That's awesome. That's an awesome answer. Yeah. I, I love to you know, push that out to my audience. Yeah. Lucius, L-U-C-I-U-S. Um, they uh, people will recognize their music. They've they've had a song in a commercial. So I mean, what more do you want? Perfect. <laughs> well, Dean, I appreciate you doing this. It's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you too. Thank you. Well, congratulations on the uh, on the podcast, and um, I'll um, I'll have to tune in. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Big thank you to Dean Dinning of Toad the Red Sprocket. I've been a big fan of the band, and it was great to have the opportunity to dig deeper into their story. Dean was very gracious with his time and very encouraging to me and the show, so all was greatly appreciated. You can keep tabs on Toad via their website, toadthewetsprocket.com, and their subsequent social channels. As for Rockonomics, if you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and leave us a comment. That's the best way to get the word out and our rankings up. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for news and updates. We'll be back next week with a guitarist who has a shiny new 2018 Grammy to add to his resume, so tune in to find out who that could be. Episode 37, we hardly knew you, but we have to say goodbye and goodnight. So good night, Cleveland. 